Okay, welcome everyone to uh, Course with Good Ideas. And today we have, well, me, Gabriel, uh, Dino is always around, and a couple of other uh, more or less occasional guests, hosts, uh, Patrick and Asa are here. So welcome back. Good to see you. Hello. Uh, we're, we're, we're all, all, all of us. I'm, I'm in Norway, Bergen. I assume Dino is in Hangzhou, right? Yeah. What about you guys? Yeah, I'm in Leeds, UK, okay. as I have been for the last yeah. year, basically. And Patrick, are you in uh, New York, right? You're back in New York? You're happy yes. to be back in New York? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn, but don't tell the University of California. Okay, I will not tag them. <laughs> um, and today we have uh, our guest of honor, well, who is uh, Leif, or I don't know if you want to go by your name and surname on the podcast. Uh, yeah, just Leif is fine. Just Leif is fine, okay. And um, I, I have no idea who you are, but I know you are, uh, we are uh, mutuals on Twitter, which I enjoy. And uh, I think you, uh, you met Dino in Hangzhou or somewhere else. In Shanghai. Shanghai, okay. Maybe so you can introduce how you met, like what was going on there. Yeah, uh, I'm Leif. I'm currently in Kentucky, actually. Okay. Um, and I met Dino, I was finishing up well i was having basically a, escaping the pandemic being in shanghai okay. and dino was just uh finishing uh just just getting had just gotten out of quarantine i think not very long prior which was a weird experience because i had been in shanghai kind of the whole time and mm. uh had felt you know uh very free um and that wasn't the case for <laughs> people in almost any almost anywhere else i guess at that point um what were you doing uh were you doing like your field work yeah. or research related well it was, it was kind of weird i'm a phd student um and i was doing field work previously in shanghai and i had still had my apartment there um okay. but then there was a kind of series of uh pandemic related travel issues where I ended up staying in Shanghai for um, most of up through the summer of this year, um, which wasn't really the plan, um, but kind of made way more sense than going back to the US. Um, although I eventually did go back to the US and now it, I wish I uh, hadn't had to do that. So how long did you stay uh, overall for your field work? So like a year um, more? Kind of a long time, actually. I had a, so I'm a, I'm a, I'm a geographer. I study migration. Um, and I, my project, at least at the start, was I was trying to do um, research on migrant construction labor in Shanghai. Oh, nice. And so I started field work in early 2018. Um, and I had no funding and just kind of had some money and moved to Shanghai um, on a tourist visa and was trying to do research and basically failed for kind of nine months or so. Um, and Matt was kind of miraculously able to get a grant um, that allowed me to stay for most of 20, um, most of 2019. So at that point, I finally kind of stopped failing and was able to get in with um, a, some friends in the in the that I had made in the construction industry and got in with a company and um, just kind of I, I worked I did fiber optic installation um, oh, cool. in Shanghai for like infrastructure construction basically 
um, for nine months of 2018, of 2019. Um, and I was supposed to, so my research ended, the technical like research period ended in like December, 2019. Um, and I came back, but I decided to do a bunch of my writing in Shanghai um, because it worked and would be cheaper to live. And I didn't like technically have to teach. Basically when you're a construction worker um, getting research grant money you don't spend any money at all on anything. And so it was kind of like, I was able to just carry most of that, like over, carry that over into yeah. the next bit. So in the end, I think I lived there, I, I lived in Shanghai for like almost, I guess a little over two years. But um, so you were like actually working as a construction worker with this company or? Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> It was kind of ridiculous. So it basically the way that it worked out was a friend of a friend. I mean, it's like classic, right? Like a guy that I met has an uncle who is a big boss and the uncle introduces me to a smaller boss and the smaller boss is a um, very astute social climber. And he says, yes, I would love to have a Chinese speaking foreigner in my like circle of yeah. guys that I can draw on for things and um, just started like inviting me to dinners as a way to I don't know get to know me but also like have some social capital and um, make like have specifically have social capital with you know there were a bunch of dinners where it's like oh uh, Mr. Wong this is Leaf uh, he is my friend. He went to Fudan. You went to you went to Fudan. I don't know anything about Fudan, so you guys talk. Um, because he, the the boss was a um, had come out of being a migrant worker initially in the '90s and basically like built himself up um, to the point of having his company employs a couple hundred people basically. Um, so it how, kind of how was the. I'm just curious because like, I cannot imagine yeah. how was the. Like legally, were you like, what, did you get a work visa for this or were you just doing it? Um, I was not employed. Okay. So I, and, and, and so, so I was, I was on a tourist visa, which was recommended by the um, advisory people at Fudan, which is where I had kind of my association with right. the research grant. Um, and I wasn't technically employed, mm -hmm. but the situation, I mean, with any kind of migrant worker, migrant labor in the construction industry, you just don't have a labor contract period any at all. Everything is done orally. And so it was really kind of um, normal for me to, yeah. be, to be there without any kind of formal papers. Um, I refused to take money, mm. which I maybe shouldn't have done. And so people through the whole time that I was there, I would keep, people would pull me aside and say like, are you, are you doing this? You're doing this for no money. Why are you doing this for no money? This is insane. <laughs> um, you should be, you should be getting paid. Here's how much you should be getting paid. I want you to make sure that you know that you should be getting paid for this. Um, but I felt kind of like in the event that there was some kind of weird legal thing, yeah. um, we ran into cops several times and they were always very curious about what a foreigner was doing as part of a construction crew. And um, I felt like if there was any, if at any point I ran into um, any kind of legal issue, it would make more sense for me to be able to say, no, I was not paid. I'm just, 
um, I'm just here on the on the construction crew. Yeah, I would imagine that to be quite uh, sensitive in terms of yeah, as you say, like the police seeing a foreigner with a construction crew. Wouldn't it be very like yeah sensitive or, or like evident that you might be doing some work on labor issues and stuff, which is quite sensitive in China. I mean, I remember when I was living in like a semi-rural village already just for like an art residency they were telling me like don't go too much around and if the police asks you're just here for a day visiting you're not actually living here and stuff like that and that was just living so yeah, yeah. i think it was really weird so i that was part of my um part of why i had so much trouble in the first year of my research was because i had a ton of anxiety and i didn't want to there was a ton of there were places that I wanted to kind of just walk into or make friends with the Bawan or, or whatever. Um, and the, the person, at least the foreigner who has done mo the most research like this is a woman, Sarah Swider. And that's kind of what she did um, is just walk onto construction sites, make friends with Bawan, make friends with um, sort of gatekeepers and just get in. Um, and what I found was that that was basically impossible in Shanghai at this point. Um, and I think it might be possible in a smaller, in a smaller city. Um, but at least at, in Shanghai, like it's all actually like biometric. You have to like do a like eye scan or they, they have all of these like weird, no, no, I don't think it's eye scans, but they have like weird, um, like, like actual, yeah, yeah, like biometric checks to get in and out of the, the construction site. Um, and so it was never really possible for me to do that. The way that it ended up working was there's like the formal construction sector, um, which is quite locked down. And then there's all of this sort of like peripheral stuff, which is lower cap, like lower, less capital intensive, basically. Um, and as a result is less formalized. And um, I think this industry actually worked the um, like fiber optic communications infrastructure installation industry was a particularly good place for me to be because all of the projects, we would only work in one place for about, um, we worked in a couple of Xiaoxu for like uh, three, for like a month or three weeks or something. Um, but the vast majority of the projects were just like two days in one place and then we move on to the next place. So it's like mobile um, in ways that the authorities who would be governing it are not mobile. Yeah. And um, and also we're never home. Like we have, we, I, I slept um, in this sort of like informal dormitory house that was um, rented for workers, uh, but we were never there basically because we were working like 14 hour days. Um, so if anybody comes to check um, there was one, there was like one time when a cop, I, or I, I don't know, some, an agent of the state basically, he was in a police uniform, but he was doing like population management checks. Mm -hmm. Um, and he came to the dormitory one time, um, and was like, what are you doing here? I'm going to come back tomorrow and you better not be here. And so I went, I went to my apartment for the next night and then went back and it was fine. Um, but in general, like there was no contact, there was like, it felt like there was no room for there to be contact with the state. Um, and it also felt like at that point, because I was operating under the, um, like under the auspices of the, of this boss at any moment I could call him and yeah. he could sort of smooth things out. 
So, sorry, can I? Yeah, yeah. I was, I was just going to ask. So, from the perspective of like a migrant labourer, is that a um a more more precarious or less well paid gig than being in a, a formalised construction team? Um, I don't think so. Mm. Actually, uh, none of the the guys that I worked with had mostly worked on formal construction teams in the past, and basically there are just um. Basically, there are trade-offs is the way that they see it. So a formal construction team, and it's actually interesting, like a formal construction team will pay slightly more. Um, the living conditions will be slightly better now, actually. There's been a big change since 2008, and um, they've made it so that a lot of the dormitories have to be sort of standardized and reasonably high quality. Um so it's slightly better in this way, but it's actually less free. And a main thing that they were really frustrated about is that um, formal construction requires you to take safety precautions. Mm. And none of the workers want to deal with the safety precautions. They think it's like slows you down. They think it's annoying. They think, you know, you, you, you like have to wear the clothing basically. Mm. And like a lot of the time, if you're digging ditches in the summer, um, in Shanghai, it gets super hot. And so it's like everybody, you know, stri strips down and is digging ditches in your boxers or whatever, um, which is more comfortable and less, uh, less annoying than wearing the sort of like heavy, heavy uniform that they issue you. Um, yeah. Hmm. Would, is it, sorry, would that like require, um, so in, in the formal sector, would that also be a thing of because you maybe you'd be more likely to or more formalized sector, would you be more likely to kind of have to pay into provident funds or like insurance funds that were held by the employer? I know there's like a lot of concern around that, the degree to which like welfare is formalized amongst migrant laborers. And then there's a kind of lot of distrust of that, that it's then stolen by employers and stuff like that. Is that a issue that you're aware of or? Um, well, it's totally non-existent in the sector that I was working in, sure. um, where everybody is paid cash. And, yeah. um, you know, when I talked to, not actually, I, I didn't ask most of these questions, um, mm -hmm. but like when the boss talks about um, insurance and, and, and all of these funds with people who um, are perceived as connected to the state in some way or potentially connected to the state, um, Yes, of course, every, all of the insurance is being paid, um, is the report there. But yeah. from the perspective of, the, of, of workers themselves, um, it's never there. Nothing is, mm -hmm. and nothing is formalized. Everything is oral contracts. Mm. Um, I think for a lot, I think, I think there's like a sector of workers who are um, in slightly more formalized positions on the like larger formalized construction sites who do have to pay into that stuff. But I think that most of those people are um, like semi-permanent in Shanghai. Um, mm. There are a bunch of guys that I hung out with um, 
who were working on on a formal construction site under as a like 10 person work crew under a specific like basically like sub subcontractor uh, labor provider and um, I think their position was actually more precarious than the guys that I worked with because they were working under a certain one guy who they didn't know very well and who was providing labor to a subcontractor on a housing project um, and so their connection to the housing project was very tenuous whereas the guys that I was working with have the sort of benefit of you're working directly for um, a company and your relationship with the company, even though it's still an oral, like an oral agreement, um, like you at least know who the company is um, rather than being like a sub, some random guy subcontractor under some company under like Shanghai number five construction or whatever. Um, so I, th I, th I think it, I, th I think it varies uh, based on I think I think there are like various levels of formality in any given construction site, basically. Yeah. Um, and company, that varies by industry. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, the, the, I'm just curious. The, so the company this boss you were working for was like all he did was a fiber optic. This was the main uh, line of work. Mm -hmm. And then who did he do it for? I mean, is it like for telecom companies or for like local? Because wants to get better connections, so they get cables. How does it work? Um, so what's going on in so Shanghai, Shanghai right now is doing this like citywide project called Tiakongruti, which is like the undergrounding of all of the like every single overhead cable. Okay. Um, not every single. The 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 goal is like to reduce the amount of overhead cable by 70% in two years or something. Um, and so this has created basically a pretty broad industry. Um, there are like, I, would, I, I think dozens um, probably of uh, labor like operators working at various sizes. Um, the company that I worked for is a little bit unique because it both is a direct labor provider um, and gets is like kind of on the verge of getting um, first party contracts. So, but I, I think like 50% or so of the contracts that we did, the work, the jobs that we did were direct contracts from um, the telecom, telecom company. Okay. Uh, and like, basically this is, this is not like, we, d we did some stuff for like, uh, Liantong and Zhongguo Yidong and stuff. Um, but mostly we did work for um, Oriental Cable, Dongfang Yosin, um, which is the provider. And the, kind of the way that it works actually is because the underground infrastructure is a, it's a series of tubes basically. Yeah. And um, that is like built and then the right to run actual cable through that is leased out to um, anyone who wants to lease it basically. Um, and so it's like Dongfang Yosian does all of the uh, like the underground tubing infrastructure, and then we would like run cables for Liantong or something like that. Um, but a lot of it, it, it you know, it, it sort of depends. And a lot of the the other half of the contracts are um, like subcontracting gigs for larger uh, larger companies that are doing some kind of construction, um, but need a like cable laying component to that construction. Like one of the first jobs that I did, um, there were 
building a new Paichu school, like building a new um, police station in a kind of developing area. And um, so we laid all of the pipes that were eventually going to hold all of the CCTV like surveillance uh, cable. And that one, like it wasn't like the, um, it wasn't the public safety people contracting us or anything. It was like a subcontracted gig under the um, general contractor that was building the Paiju School. So it's kind of like half and half. And the boss, basically the deal is like the real profit is to be made when you can get in at the sort of like top level of contract contracting. Um, but that's entirely based on um, basically uh, connections. And so most, most of the companies that are getting top level contracts um, don't actually employ any workers themselves. They're like empty, like shell companies. Yeah, they just which, just pass it down. Yeah. And I'm curious uh, about this com this uh, this campaign. Uh, is it so it's, it's limited to Shanghai and it's like um, because I just read my, well I haven't read it I just read the abstract actually but there's this article about uh, the same thing being discussed in Japan I think of like taking all the cables out of the off the streets and putting them underground and there was a like a debate uh, mostly urban planning and also urban aesthetics as people arguing that the cables are part of Japan's image. Uh, seemed like a pretty cool article, but I haven't read it. But I was wondering what, where this, if you know where this campaign came from in Shanghai, is it a matter of like to get better infrastructure or to homogenize it or, or is it like public image type of thing? Um, I can I can look it up. I don't have it pulled up right now, but there's a really amazing statement from um, the like opinions on improving Shanghai communications infrastructure that was the announcement for the announcement that they were going to do this project. Um, and it's almost completely aesthetic. Um, it was basically like uh, you know take steps towards. Uh, the gradual elimination of black pollution, they say, hey, so we're in. Oh, wow, cool. Um, and, you know, construct a um, beautiful, safe, and like smoothly functioning urban environment. Um, and then, and I, and I don't think that there are, well, it, it, it sort of depends on who you ask, uh, the, the opinions, of course. Um, I don't think that there was a large amount of debate about it in terms of like the urban aesthetic and whether or not it's like part of what the city should be. Um, Cause it's wrapped up in all of these like progress narratives that at least for most of the people that I talked to had been so sort of like internalized that they're hard to come back. Everybody's just, you know, Japan, Japan does that see anime sort of aesthetic thing. I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how to frame it because I'm not sure where I actually read this. Um, but I was remembering the some like conversation I was reading somewhere around um, a famous drama set in Shanghai. Um, I think I think like or whichever this one was, um, that follows a follows a bunch of young women um, like getting themselves set in Shanghai, and it has some inter It has some like vague like class discussion but one that one thing that's that I noticed about that um and that was written about somewhere was that it was actually not allowed for them to shoot um to include shots that had the sort of like uh hang outside laundry hanging that is you know super common across Shanghai at least China in general 
Um, and it was sort of this like, that show had to be presented as if everybody in China had dryers or something. Um, I don't remember where this where this conversation was from, but I think that I think that that's like kind of reflected in this thing that like this black overhead cabling can't be considered a like positive like positive aesthetic part of the environment. Um, but from the from the perspective of the of the the not the workers necessarily, but the people in the company, um, the boss and some of the other folks who are higher up, like working in the, in the company office or doing planning, um, their perspective was essentially that um, it was all just a grift that was wasting, ta wasting taxpayer money. Um, okay, cool. And it was just, a, it, it was just, you know, people would pretty regularly show me like a site that we're working on and say, well, look, uh, so here we're going to put in all of these new poles and we're going to do all of this, but do you know that they actually just redid this street six months ago? And do you know how much money they spent on redoing this street six months ago? Um, this whole thing is stupid. They're going to redo this street again, or like um, all of this work that we're going, that we're doing right now is going to be rolled back and redone next year when they're putting in the other highway that goes here or whatever. Um, so there was this like kind of broad sense that it was um, just like a waste, a waste of money. Um, people only said a couple of times that it was acting as kind of a jobs program, but that's my perspective is that it's, you know, you're just employing um, for this one project, thousands of rural men who would otherwise, I mean, they would probably go work in construction somewhere else. Um, but, you know, broadly, broadly speaking, it was just a kind of guaranteed employment program that um, actually pays pretty well. Um, most people there are making, uh, well, it, it depends on like the, the way that you're, you set your oral contract up, but, um, people are making on average like 6,000 RMB a month, which is, you know, double what you'd be making in, in the service sector, most yeah. or large chunks of the service sector. Mm. Was it, was it like effective as an urban program then? Do you think, I mean, I remember bits of Shanghai. I think I've got like photos from the first time I went to Shanghai as like a teenager and took photos of all these hundreds of wires in a big mass, like around, um, like some of old central Shanghai. Is Do you not see that anymore? Do you, do, you, do you now walk around Shanghai kind of feeling like your work is on show by virtue of these, like the absence of black pollution? Yes. Um... And so, so the, there's like various stages to one of these projects. Um, so there's like a, a surveying stage where you map out every single cable that exists in a, along a street and where it goes and what it's connected to. Um, and then you will install the underground like piping infrastructure. Um, and then you will install the new cables, run all of the new cables through that. And that's a different work team. Um, and then you will go, th go through and remove all of the existing cable. And, you know, there were, um, there were a couple of jobs that I did where we were going through, yeah, like through old Shanghai kind of, I forget the specific road and I probably shouldn't say it anyway. Um, but you know, old downtown Shanghai and, um, just going along the street with ladders and pulling down, 
20 or 30 bundles of 20 or 30 cables. We would just pull down cable by cable and filling them, putting them all in the back of a truck, um, sorting the ones that had copper inside that were the legacy copper stuff that you can actually um, sell. And then taking all of the rest and taking it back to the place where our team was and dumping it over the wall across the street you know, onto the to be developed um, chunk of land. Um, and yeah, we just did that over and over. Um, and when it's done, they really do take, and they're taking everything down. Actually, I didn't, I didn't know this before doing this job, but like, if you are walking around Shanghai, you can actually see like different generations of infrastructure that, that exist. So that based on the, like the actual poles. And so there will be poles for electricity, poles for fiber, or what was originally like telephone cables, um, poles for like traffic lights and like street lights. And then there's like surveillance cameras attached to all of those along with some like specific surveillance camera only poles. Um, so what they're trying to do with this, and it is a real thing, like it has worked in the places that they've done it. Um, they're actually removing all of the poles and unifying them. So it's like all of the surveillance, they're like surveillance cameras and street lights on the same sort of like street side pole. And then all of what was previously overhead is getting moved underground. And it more or less works. It's kind of, it is kind of does feel different. Um, is it something unique to Shanghai? Like, a, is it a pioneering program or is it up in, a, in other cities? Like, I don't know, or in Hangzhou, do you know, but, or, or Chongqing? I think. I think that it's a pilot program for Shanghai specifically that probably will get ruled out elsewhere as tends to happen. Um, yeah. But I actually haven't gone to or checked on other cities. Um, I think probably it will, if it hasn't started already, and I suspect that it would is starting kind of now or um, last year, although the pandemic probably slowed things down. Uh, yeah, they've been doing it here as well, but um there's a bit of difference between Shanghai and um, Hangzhou. Hangzhou is a relatively new city. I mean, well, it's an old city, but like the, the areas that is most urbanized are relatively newer than Shanghai. Shanghai is like probably a hundred years old in terms of the area you probably went to the old areas, especially the concession and stuff. I don't know if whether it worked um, in, uh, in those concessions, in those you know, formerly concessions. Um, and also probably in the smaller cities or I mean second tier cities, this is probably less so because the stuff that built like they're new anyway. So when they're built, um, for example, in Hangzhou, like right now you've seen a lot of um, poles with like everything all together, like surveillance cameras, uh, light, traffic light, but also with like those massive um, um, with flashlight uh, for like uh, monitoring traffic, or I think for speeding or something, probably. Yeah, and probably but also, also they have like seven. Yeah, like, also you have like uh, boxes, like probably five G boxes there, um, those uh, installed on those poles as well. So it's like one super sick uh, metal pole with everything on it. And you see more stuff like this in especially uh, uh, like more dense. Probably, I'm just talking about Hangzhou, not Shanghai. Shanghai is probably a different case, especially with the old residential areas. Yeah, because everything was built new, so they're testing new technologies. I think 
especially in the city. So I think there will be probably more polls like this with like one poll combining all these different functions, um, just both monitoring the traffic and the pedestrians yeah, as I mean, well as like, providing phone signal. It's like smart, smart street lights with everything embedded in it. Yeah, and it's kind of, I, I mean, if you remember back in, um, it was it was interesting because I was kind of building, I was, do, I was doing this uh, some at the same time as the Hong Kong movement and um, yeah, yeah. all of the, if, I, I, don't, I don't know if you remember, but I was paying particular attention to all of the videos of um, people pulling down and yeah, 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 yeah. dissecting the um, like smart street, smart street lamps. Yeah, and I was kind of thinking, well, here we are making that interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah. I do, I do think it, it was interesting. And th that was, th this was like a district specific thing. Um, but there was a, there was a time when we were installing some infrastructure up in um, Hong Kong, which is not the most like advanced or newly built area. Um, and so I'm not sure why this was happening here, but we were building stuff in. And at the same time, there was a crew of um, college educated looking young men in a very different like class position who were uh, like strapping uh, antennas to poles. And I talked to them for a little while and they were like, oh no, this is the new 5G thing where we're gonna totally replace your job um, by making all of this. Uh, I, th I think they were trying to, I, th I think it's like a wireless solution for transmitting the surveillance data. Oh, um, okay. Cause it's interesting, like actually, I didn't know this beforehand, but actually all of the surveillance stuff is not going, it's not like it goes to an, the internet. Um, like all of those cameras are actually directly hardwired to a Pichuswa. And if you go to any Pichuswa, you can actually um, see like if, 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 it's a, if it's a relatively old one, I know I saw this in like Jing'an Pichuswa, like the Jing'an central uh, like headquarters for public safety. And um, there's this massive collection of all of the, um, all of the surveillance camera connections that just go into the side of the building at, at some point um, that ends up, you know, it ends up being like as thick as, like as thick as a person, just huge di diameter um, of just like fiber optic cable. So I think it's, I, th I, th I think there's like a lot of inefficiency in how that infrastructure is built. And I think that um, what Dino was saying is likely to be kind of the future of just like actually making it wireless and using like internet infrastructure rather than this, this kind of like direct link. Yeah, I mean, I, I was reading uh, some of the new opinions on the development of uh, surveillance for the next five years or something. And I, th I think that's what they were saying that basically 5G, the push for 5G is because of this, that you can basically have um, IP cameras just going on the same channel as uh, commercial internet connections and, and smartphones roaming everything uh, on 5G. So it would it would help standardize this kind of, uh, instead of having one cable for every camera that goes to, to the Pichel so you can just have a nation, nationwide system. Again, this would require a whole new set of like uh, transmitters and poles and maybe probably cables as well. I don't know. So you'll have jobs. You can do another project. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of hope so. Um, I don't. I don't think. Well, I don't think it's going to go away anytime soon either. Because there's a lot. There's a ton of it. I, I mean, it's a huge 
kind of expansive stuff. Um, even just like not including the like the actual electric power power line stuff, which is we didn't touch. But you know, there's then there's the other part because you know, we did a bunch in Xiaochu, and there's this collection. Basically, what will happen is they'll remove all of the overhead cabling in a Xiaochu, and at the same time they'll install um, centralized. They'll install more. Um, more cameras and stuff. That was the one project that we did for like a month. Um, and that stuff is all very labor intensive because um, you basically are just digging up. Um, we kind of wrecked this this place that we were, were working in for a month. Um, so you just have to dig up everything up and put trenches along every single, um, like every single building so that you can like get the wires to the endpoint. Um, so I think, yeah, it's going to be going on for forever. Are you, are you currently writing, what are you doing? Like, are you writing your uh, dissertation or are you writing articles about this? Yeah, I'm writing, um, the way that my program works, and I, this may actually, this may actually change, I'm not sure. Um, but the way that my program works is we can do, we have the option to do a dissertation that's like three articles. Oh yeah. Um, sure. And so I'm writing, I'm writing up. Um, I have one article that's mostly written that's about kind of infrastructure and like the labor of building infrastructure. Um, and then I've got another one that I'm currently writing uh, slowly about masculinity. And then there's gonna be a third one about um, citizenship because I actually kind of started this whole thing thinking about, um, I originally did research on like Huko and um, sort of like legal citizenship questions. Um, now I'm thinking about that less because nobody very few people that I talk to actually think about it or care about it in their everyday life. Um, you mean the, the, the workers themselves in this company? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, so the boss does actually, because he can get, he's on his way to getting Shanghai Huko by oh, um, right. like, uh, I think buying himself a master's degree and stuff cool. like that. <laughs> um, but the, for, for workers, it's kind of like, if you want to talk about Huko, they're kind of going to say like, that's stupid. And that's also a pipe dream. I don't like, I don't want it in any place that would ever give it to me. Okay. And um, Shanghai would be great, but it, they're never going to give it to me. So um, not worth it. I haven't, uh, I haven't followed the, the Huko stuff for years, I think, but the last uh, things I was reading was that it was on its way to be abolished, but uh, how's the, is, is this just announcements of things to come, but that will not be put in practice? Well, so I would imagine in Shanghai, Beijing is still in practice and pretty yeah, much yeah, it is, it is. for, but in like other, well, sort of even first tier city like Guangzhou and, um, and even then second tier city is pretty much obsolete. It's not that important. I mean, you can get it. It's not that. Well, like for example, Hangzhou is quite easy. You just apply and then you get. It's not okay. like it's just it's like relocation. Mm -hmm. It's like real, like sort of like a migration. I mean, maybe like like European like European sit well say you, like you're getting a residency residency card or something in Norway. Yeah, yeah, it's sure. not like it's not like extremely difficult or anything. You just apply, but yes, in Shanghai it's uh pretty pretty difficult in Beijing as well. But it it also doesn't matter in a sense unless you want to uh, buy a, a property mm -hmm. and uh, send your kid to a school. The yeah, yeah I think that was an issue. That's the only two things that actually makes the whole thing matters. Others, otherwise, 
say, leave an example with all these migrant workers, say if they just say uh, either a single man or they are married, but their their wife and kids are in the countryside. So Hukou, Shanghai Hukou wouldn't matter to them because they were not going to stay there anyway. Uh, other things doesn't matter because you it, it doesn't stop you from going there or, or renting a place if you want to leave there. Yeah, there's the last couple of years, there were a couple of um, like opinions that came out of, I think the state council and the NDRC that said essentially what they're going to do. There, there's like, it's like all hookah restrictions will be abolished at cities below a certain population. And I don't remember the, I, I don't remember the precise numbers, um, but it's like abolished below a specific size and dramatically loosen um, for like medium sized cities. And then the like, it's like, they, they say, so, so it's like like small and medium sized cities have to abolish hukou. Large cities have to loosen restrictions, which I think includes Hangzhou. And then um, like like mega cities um, have to, that, like they're also kind of pushing for it to be m- more um, opened up in, an, in, in a way, but it's interesting because at the same time there are like formal population caps for Beijing and Shanghai. Um, and they won't, like they won't be able to actually maintain that population cap without, in the case of Shanghai, I think like actually actively repatriating a bunch of workers um, and like getting people to move back. So it's kind of this weird situation where like, there are like conflicting pressures. Um, but I think what's kind of happening in cities outside of Shanghai is that everybody is kind of like, like urban, urban governments have recognized that migrants drive growth and you need migrant workers, especially like migrant workers who are low paid and coming from places that are, have cheaper standards of living than where you're at um, to do manufacturing or do construction or do any of the things that are driving, that are like driving economic growth. And um, so my reading is actually that like, there's all of these places um, that are like the sort of like central government pronouncements that they're going to abolish hukou at the, in the, at the level of smaller cities are actually coming behind smaller cities themselves, which are kind of have been trying to open up as much as they can anyway, um, because they want migrants. Yeah, that was, I was going to say, that's like, one of one of my things I'm trying to write about Chongqing is very much you know when when the Chongqing model opened or like uh, abolished the difference between uh, abolished all like hukou differences or most hukou differences in the city and it was kind of heralded as uh, socialism in our time in like 2011 and then uh, yeah really like there's some good articles actually about how even with that state, even with that situation, they struggle to get people to take up hukou in Chongqing because they're like, well, you know, I have to give up my land back home and stuff like this. And um, yeah, Chongqing is not the kind of, despite all of this, Chongqing is not the city I want to kind of throw my future into. And they're still kind of holding out for somewhere a bit better. So uh, can I ask Leif, um, you've, uh, I'm, I'm curious about how you are writing about this, like uh, what the sort of like disciplinary or sort of intellectual orientation towards 
you know, the research you've gathered is like, I'm in media studies and I feel like in media studies, people say fairly abstract things about the infrastructure, you know, like, like everyone is assigning or studying like Trevor Paglin, right? Whose whole shit is like, the internet exists, like physically there. And, um, and then uh, Tang Hui Hu has like a slightly more, of course, sort of like socially or oh, social, but history of the infrastructural internet. But it's just very like, doesn't it blow your mind that like the internet is physical materials? Um, and, uh, but there's also, I mean, a lot of your work also sounds, so I'm, I'm curious how much of it is that, how much of it is um, kind of like, it sounds like very, uh, sociological or ethnographic in orientation? Like, is it about the people? Is it about the objects? Um, how, you know, what, what did, I don't know, check some names about like uh, what you're responding to, et cetera, and, and how we'll get to read about all these crazy fucking experiences you've had. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually kind of like uh, a little bit confused about it actually. Um, because I, th I think what I've done in the past is like read a bunch of theory and then found like places to do the theory to, to to like find a hole in the theory or something or find something that fits and then kind of worked backwards from there which is not uh what you really want to do when you're doing ethnography or anything um and so now i am in the situation where i have this large body of ethnographic data and i'm kind of like uh confused as to how to actually generate theory from it in ways that it, actually interface well with existing like with all of the stuff that i've been reading um i'm kind of so what i want to do is i'm kind of coming the infrastructure side is new to me um i hadn't read about infrastructure and then i just found myself doing work on infrastructure and saying thinking that it was kind of important and um, a friend of mine who is also doing re was also doing research at Ch in Shanghai at the same time that I was um, on like waste. Uh, they're doing this whole like waste sorting initiative. She kind of encouraged me to write about infrastructure. And so in that sense, I'm responding largely to um, anthropology, like anthropologists writing about infrastructure. Um, and a lot of that has been anthropologists and geographers actually. But there are all of these people. There are all of these people who write about, like, basically they'll do ethnography of, like, some of it is new materialist, um, but mostly they're writing about, like, the new materialist side, and then a bunch of engineers is who they'll interview and work with. And so some of what I'm trying to write here is that, like, there's, it's not fully a new material, like. I've never been fully, like I, I like some of the new materialist stuff, but I've never been fully in that world. And um, kind of what I want to do is say, look, like, yeah, the internet is material stuff and it requires labor to make happen. And all of this requires labor. Partly that's because I got really influenced by Sarah Swider. And there's a couple, there's a geographer, Michelle Buckley, um, who's a really, really good ethnographer of construction and makes cool arguments about how it's kind of a, it's kind of a Marxist argument, actually, like Swider does this and Michelle Buckley does this too. And basically saying, look, like anything that you build ends up requiring migration, like, like migrant labor is a part of construction because con when you're building something, you're building something in place. And um, so you can't just ship the factory to where the labor is cheap. 
So what you end up doing is you ship the labor from where it's cheap to where you're building the thing. So I'm kind of engaging with that stuff. Yeah, but not, so not, not, not Trevor Paglin very much. There's a guy at UC Boulder, Tim Oaks, um, who writes China infrastructure oh, yeah. stuff, who's very cool. Um, I, he moderated a panel that I was on uh, a little earlier this year and I'm kind of have been uh, using some of his stuff. And then there's uh, this idea of, there are these ideas about infrastructure constructing like polit, like um, polities and like the idea that the polity is, is constructed by the infra, like shared infrastructure rather than um, like political boundaries. And I want to kind of engage with some of that stuff, but basically it's, yeah, it, it, it's pretty sociological. Um, but then on the other hand, like the, all of the stuff that I read for Qualls, all the stuff that I read to prepare for this is like, um, all the, and that I want to use is like affect stuff. And I really, I have had this idea about like talking about citizenship through affect for forever. And not, there's not a lot of people that have done that. There's Elaine Ho, Elaine Linney Ho, um, wrote a really great paper using like emotional geography stuff to talk about citizenship. And I kind of want to do that, but more firmly in the affect realm. Um, but it's all kind of just like super confused to me at this point. There's that. And then there's, then there's this whole other like chunk of um, masculinities literature and like yeah. Chinese masculinities literature. Um, I was very which, curious to, to hear you say more about that because that sounds like very lived. And, and mm -hmm. I feel like probably some overlap with some uh, really great like online articles that I've read by Dino as well talking about uh, uh, masculinities. So yeah, what's, what's, what's the angle there? I mean, my, and, and maybe this is like in, inadequate reading on my part, but I think most of the people when I'm looking at who, the most of the people who I see cited, see being cited around masculinity are specifically in China. That, well, I don't know. There's this whole like sociology, like masculinity studies stuff, some of which I find not very useful because um, it kind of rehashes like feminist scholars points without citing them in weird ways. But like most of the Chinese, like literature that I see people citing about masculinity in China that comes out of this, uh, comes out of that paradigm is focused on middle class or wealthy men. And there's a really good, there, there's a couple, there's a couple of pretty good um, books and articles about that. Um, there's like, and I really like like Anxious Wealth. I think John Osberg is the guy who wrote that. That was about uh, Balfahu, like entrepreneurs. It's from like 2013. I kind of want to write like a something event eventually that is kind of a corollary to that. Cause the guy, the, the boss, is a character from that book basically. And a lot of the stuff that was in, cause I had this weird, like my, especially the, the field work for this with the construction company was really weird because I would be working with all of these and it was hundred percent men. It was uniformly men who are working in this, uh, in this company. It's not always like that. It depends on if uh, companies can provide like space for couples to live, to live together at which point then you would get, um, couples like and women working on construction sites i was working with all of these men who are the average age is like 45 or but most people are older um i was usually i'm like 33 and i was always the youngest person on the construction site mm -hmm. um and 
then I was, uh, I would be, I would be like working on these construction sites for weeks. And then I would get a call from the boss that he needed me at a, at a business dinner, um, that night. And I would rush home and I would change and just like totally change contexts and hang out. And the boss guy is, uh, also in his thirties. He's not much older than me. And, um, he is rich and hanging out with all of these rich people and going to not like elite elite there's a pretty high the high the high end is pretty high in shanghai i feel like um but you know um going to the japanese restaurant that doesn't have open table seating only has um like yeah little baozian rooms and just drinking a ton of sake with all of these um you know, local government guys and other construction bosses. And at the end, everybody says, okay, that's great. So we're going to do the deal, right? And they do the deal. Um, and I think there's like a really interesting, like, I, th- I think there's a really interesting gender thing that happens across classes. Um, and like the, I think it gave me a, I haven't been able to theorize it as well as I would like to yet. I'm still kind of thinking about it, but the total different, it, it, it really is totally different worlds. Um, and one of the things that a lot of the masculinity studies people say is that like current Chinese masculinity is about cons- consumption and it's about consumption and this like consuming the right things in the right ways um, is an argument that's been made in a, a few different places. And what they that what they then sort of say is like I didn't do any research with low like low income men, um, but I can assume based on my theory that they might not be masculine at all, um, or or that they might be unable to like uh, fill the sort of like masculine roles, um, and so the, the but the experience that I had with those dudes is you know they're in fact quite masculine in various different ways. Um, but they, they're doing different things than, um, well, than wealthy people. And they're like measuring things on different, uh, in, di- in different ways. Yeah. So I, 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 I want to think more about that basically, but I don't have a good coherent theory to offer you or anything. And we do a, like a methodology corner for our listeners who, who might be interested in uh, pursuing this kind of, no, cause I think a lot of people are always uh, fascinated by how, how other people do research. And I think your case is quite emblematic. Um, I read some articles about similar processes in which, yeah, you do ethnographic research in China and you have one uh, company boss or, or local uh, gangster-like figure that kind of takes you under his wing or her wing, but I guess it's mostly his wing um, and gives you like an entry into their world. So I was wondering, yeah, what, 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 what would you say and what kind of did this person know about your research and to what extent and did it did he um like understand what you were getting out of it or was he puzzled like the workers and what kind of things are implied by doing this sort of work which i think is amazing but like it's it really throws off a lot of uh, uh the usual ethical discussion you have with uh, you know when you when you go to do ethnographic field work about yeah so the bond, and I told I told everybody that I was do, that I was a researcher, that I was doing research, that I was going to publish things. The boss actually understood, I think, a little bit better okay. than a lot of the um, a lot a lot of the workers. And I think so. There was 
there, there was some element of this that was a little bit that was transactional. Um, right. Like I would show up, I agreed to show up to business deals to provide him to, to, to show up to, to these business dinners um, in exchange for access to some extent. And I don't, it was never like said that explicitly, but it felt like that was kind of an implicit thing that was happening. Right. Um, but at the same time, like in, on numerous occasions, uh, what he said was like, I want you to be able to write accurately about this world of construction work. And I think the way that he felt about it, because he came out of that and it, it, it's interesting, like he has, he's done a lot of work to ingratiate himself with chunks of like Shanghai and Shanghainese society. But I think he still feels pretty connected to like the actual on the ground work of doing construction and like being a migrant worker in the construction industry. And he, you know, employs a bunch of, a bunch of his family members are employed by his company and, um, you know, and are still doing hard day-to-day labor and stuff. Um, and so he, I, I told, I asked him like, can I go work on your cruise? And he said, yes. And some previous boss, some other bosses had told me yes before, but I had like gone and worked on a crew for one day or something. And then they'd been like, did you have a good time? Okay, great. You've had the experience and, uh, now get out of my hair. And, um, I, and, and so I said, no, can I actually like live with, uh, like live with workers? Can I live on site for a while? Um, and then and his tone kind of changed and he said, and he said, oh, like, actually, yeah, I think, and you won't be able to really, um, like, you won't be able to really relate this without having that experience. And so he, you know, I, I, I think he had kind of an ethnographic theory himself about like how to generate, how to generate knowledge. And he wanted me to do that or, or was at least pretty supportive of it. It is weird at, um, I don't know, there's a bunch of ethically weird stuff and I'm, I'm currently pretty worried about um, like the extent to which my work has been or could be um, extractive. And like, I want to, I do want to go back and have pretty good relationships with some of the guys that I worked with and want to maintain those relationships um, in a like useful interpersonal level. And I think that mostly people were pretty, I, th- I think that not all of the people that I worked with, but a good chunk of the people that I worked with felt that they were benefiting from me being around, both in terms of me being able to just like take up some of the work slack and in terms of everybody would ask me questions as always happens and sort of like there is some like mutual sharing of information, sharing of experience, sharing of context. But at the same time, I mean, it, it's part of the situation where I was refusing to um, refusing to get paid. Like I was getting paid pretty well by my research grant, and now I'm going to potentially get a job based on this. That's yeah, sure. going to pay me um, quite a bit. So, and I have some experience doing. Like I, I kind of came out of um, I did Latin American studies stuff in the like way further. Back. And I feel like there's really developed ethic, like research ethics around doing like uh, mutually supportive and mutually like uh, like kind of like mutually constituted or, or, or collaborative research projects with like social movements or with social organizations or, or, or anything um, in Latin America. And I don't think that there's that like that ethic doesn't exist so much in China at all in the, like China studies. 
it also like in the Latin American context, I think it got built on both sides by people, by like social movements in yes. Latin America. And I think that that is a context that's lack that like doesn't exist in China, which is part of why, or doesn't exist so much in China. I can't, I won't say that it's not there. Yeah, but I was uh, thinking, I was thinking yeah. that this is also on that side, it has been quite problematic for both uh, social, I mean, not social movements, but maybe just NGOs and the, yes. so, and the social scientists that will do the research because uh, if it becomes sensitive or you, know, you do something that is uh, not yep. comfortable for the government, then everyone is uh, in trouble. Yep. Or, so. Yeah, I thought about this some, like I've met a decent number of people who are doing lab like labor work and it was weird, like some of the stuff that I had been worried about, because um, at the time I, I was kind of running out of money and I didn't have any money. And um, so it was, I, I had a conversation with one person that was really funny because they were like, you need to be very, very clear about like what you're doing and you need to be very careful about not drawing attention of the authorities and you are definitely being surveilled and your project is definitely very sensitive. And then I kind of freaked out about that, but then I, the conversation went on and then I was like, you know, how do I get money though? Like, do you have any ideas about grants or something? And they were like, what do you mean? You a white boy can't get a job in Shanghai? Teach English, go teach English. Um, which I had, you know, never done before because it was uh, illegal and blah, blah, blah. And so it was, it, it, there was this interesting, like, uh, vibe. But so one of the things that I, one of the things that I would say to other people doing research like this, and it probably won't stay like this for forever because I feel like anytime you can do a cool thing, um, something might get, something gets clamped down eventually. Um, so no guarantees that this is replicable, but my experience was that I had, I, I kind of avoided having official connection as much as I could, like, like to, to the university specifically. Yes. Um, and my, I, I felt like as long, it was interesting because nobody, so nobody I talked to had any conception that what I was doing was going to be sensitive basically. And uh, I think part of this is because I was in Shanghai and there's foreigners in Shanghai and that's kind of like at least a vaguely normal thing. Um, I think like there are, you know, if, if you're in a place where there's no foreigners and you stick out more, um, you're going to have to, you're going to be forced to interact with the local government at some point. But if the local government is used to seeing foreigners, you can kind of uh, do, do some things. Um, and then I was pretty, I, I think this is useful from an academic standpoint too. Um, but like, I didn't want to have anything to do with like labor organizing for my own safety, for the safety of people I was working with. I mean, this is post, what was it like 2018 crackdown, 2017, 2018 crackdown. Yeah. Um, and like the uh, NGO law stuff that really made a lot of that NGO organizing um, difficult or impossible. Some of, the, some of the ways that I'm thinking about this came out of the um, that uh, Made in China summer school stuff and conversations there. But I think that like for people studying labor in China, I don't think that NGOs in South China are a good place to go. Um, not just from a safety standpoint, but also from the standpoint of like the guys that I worked with, like if you asked them what a union was, um, they would tell you like, like there were a few guys and I, and I had some conversations about this sometimes, uh, but there were a couple of people who talked about stuff with like the, 
all China Federation of Trade Unions or whatever, like a previous job they had 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 been connected to that or something. But it was never, you know, it never meant anything to them. And I think that's the case for like the vast majority of workers in China. And so I think if you're wanting to understand workers in China, understanding the people who have been like in contact with these like politicized trade unions where people are coming from a, uh, or, or like worker centers or because it's not a union, but like the NGO stuff where people are coming from Hong Kong and trying to sort of stir things up. Like, I don't think that that model is going, it, it seems apparent that it hasn't naturally spread across China or across like the broad working class or anything like that. Um, and so I think that like starting from a position, like unless you're actively trying to organize things, which, you know, there are certain people in certain contexts who can do that, but I don't see myself as a like white guy, as somebody who can, can, can conceivably do that in any context in China. And so I think it's much more valuable to actually go to places where people are not organized and have no context and like actually look at what their daily life is like, and not just from a perspective of like, oh, these workers are so oppressed, but from a perspective of like, what are the ways that they do fight back against their bosses, you know, like weapons of the weak context? What are the ways that they, like, why do they stay in these, in, in these kinds of jobs? Um, how do they actually, how do people actually view the world? Um, and I think that that's more useful. And I think that right now, at least in my experience, that kind of thing didn't feel highly sensitive. And there were a decent number of other folks in like Chinese scholars at Fudan who I was talking, who I was working with and talking to. And a lot of them, you know, they didn't have the same theoretical framework that I was coming from. Um, but they would go and do similar research, you know, go talk to workers, ask workers questions, um, sometimes ask a bunch of questions that I wouldn't have asked because I felt like they would be too sensitive, you know? Um, and I think, I think it's partly like, like, I think, I think some of it is to a point where like the, like, like repression has been so successful that like, if you're not like saying keywords that mean this is a subversive, just don't say the subversive keywords. And then you can go and do interesting research. I think there's like a thing, I think you can probably only do it like twice because then you'll publish stuff. And if you yes. get on people's radar, you can probably, you're going to not be able to do it anymore. But I think like for, for like people doing PhD research in particular, as long as you're not going around like talking specific keywords, and if you stay with an arm's length, like at arm's length of the state, et cetera, like I never ran into it. People would always tell me like that I was definitely being surveilled, but it was like, who was surveilling me? I, I, never, I had a couple of interactions with cops, but my interactions with cops were only around, like there was this like population control chat that I mentioned earlier. And then like a couple times when cops were sent around to like knock on the doors of every foreigner in Shanghai because there was the import export thing. And I think that was a generalized situation. I think there were probably things that I could have done and maybe I was just lucky to not get on the radar of the local public security bureau or whatever. And if I had gotten on their radar, I think my life would have been much more difficult. Yeah, but I think it's also, as you say, it's a matter of positioning and of how you describe things. So yeah, it's like avoid, you know, if you avoid sensitive terms and also if you don't position yourself in certain ways, um, then even if you, in the case that you are surveilled, someone is assigned to check on you, then am I just check and be like, yeah, it's a, 
it's a guy working there maybe it's maybe it's just probably yeah whatever. exactly or curious yeah i was gonna say it's that thing of like like you're you're operating on a completely different definition of politics really from from what the chinese state or anyone who would be surveilling you understands as politics and understands as politically sensitive in i mean i remember feeling similar stuff when i was in Chongqing with asking what i thought were very kind of or interested in what I thought were very kind of political and like potentially controversial topics. And the whole thing was as, soon, as long as nobody said like Bo Xilai or any like member of leadership, like, of course, that's not controversial. What we're just kind of talking about the realities of the economy or the realities of daily life. Right, exactly. And it's, yeah, I think, I, th- I, th- I think, I think you're right that it's just like, it's actually a question of like different definitions of what is political. And because so much of this stuff and it's well, it's it's interesting too because like most of what we like, what I was interested in can be can can be discussed or can be considered under the angle of development. And development is the least political thing ever. And so it's just like, yeah, I'm interested in like you know, and 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 I, and I could I could say something like, and I did say at several points, I guess, um, something like I'm interested in de- Chinese development. How did it happen so fast? Who are the people who are doing it? And people would you know. Oh, wow. Yes. Very interesting. Who are the people who are doing all of this development? Development is good. It's good to study development. It's yeah. I mean, I was just kind of thinking about I've like as, as time has grown between my field work in, in Chongqing and now. I think like my my like trajectory, my inroad into eventually having contacts and having people who could introduce me to people and stuff like that was all done. I spent a, a period of time trying to do that completely unsuccessfully through formal academia, then ended up doing it all through like artists who I'd met because artists were this uh, a, particularly like in Chongqing at that time, or a category of person who is very good at like negotiating these these boundaries between what could potentially be controversial. How can I do this like ostensibly weird thing that people will think is kind of bizarre or kind of pointless? Um, and I might have my own kind of motivations for doing it, but how do I present it to other people? How do I, what's my kind of um, angle into it? And I wonder if that's, it seems similar to some of the stuff you were saying, where it's like, it's almost presenting your work as like cultural, right? You're interested in this kind of the cultural experience of um, of the everyday life of like workers, which is, which is if you were shooting a documentary, maybe it would be this completely depoliticized thing of, oh, look at these, look at these poor guys and look at how hard they're working. And um, with, with that framing, it could have a completely different politics. Yeah. Um, so I actually, and that was similar in terms of route, like way in um i met a bunch of people through a like arts organization and it wasn't like i I think that they were like less they were a step removed from what ended, ended up eventually happening it was just that they had good contacts and they were like oh yeah we can like get you in touch with people that you want to get in touch with and then i was sort of jumped off into construction world from there but i'm just thinking about this event that was thrown by some of these people and i'm not going to talk about the 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 people or the place or whatever but um there was this moment when like they did some people hosted a film screening and were talking about um like local culture and local food stuff and then a group of about 30 or 40 people um all walked from the film screening onto this little bridge and set up a sound system on the bridge and we're throwing a dance party on the bridge 
And um, it was all set up by uh, these people who like friends of bridges, basically. And um, from my perspective, I was like, wait a minute, this is deeply uh, political and, uh, and you know, like potentially controversial. And um, somebody asked one of because there were like some, there were organizers who did it. And then there were like participants who were just showing up for an art thing, basically. And they got ended up, the people who just showed up for the art event ended up on the bridge and they were like, wait a minute, can we do this? Can we be on this bridge um, off the sidewalk? And um, somebody asked one of the organizers, can we do this? Is this chill? What about the, what about the police? And um, one of the, what the organizers said was like, oh no, look over there, this guy over there, Mr. M M Mr. Wong or whoever, that guy, he's a big guy in this like district and we did this before and the cops showed up and he yelled at them until they left. And he likes our art because he thinks we're weird youth who are bringing weird youth things to the neighborhood. So it's chill. See, look, he's dancing. And I think that like, yeah, there's like this moment where art can do this or, or like culture, cultural activities have this uh, weird leeway. Although I get the impression that that's not the case in some places, like talking to people who were involved in things in Beijing, like it feels like there was a big push around that, like a bunch of people organized through art stuff in Beijing and have gotten um, increasingly harassed and pushed around. I think it's pretty regular, like there is a, yeah, regular waves of uh, crackdowns on this kind of spaces. I think uh, last year or so in Beijing, it was pretty hard. A lot of venues closed and art galleries. And I agree with you that Shanghai seems more, I don't know if liberal or basically less surveilled or less attention being paid at least to these uh, un until you become very visible uh, if you're doing problematic stuff, but for the most yeah. part. Um, yeah, I think so. I remember I remember uh, being living in a place without registering to any Pai Chul so for maybe two months and going myself to the Pai Chul so and saying, uh, I would like to register because <laughs> I think uh, this is illegal. And the police are like, nah, it's fine. It's not bother. So... Um, it, it might be a very Shanghai thing and it might also changed or have changed um, rapidly. But, yeah. yeah, I do think there's a thing where in like Shanghai, a lot of the like, I, that was kind of the only space like that that I had that I got connections to and they had connections to more formal art spaces. But I think a lot of Shanghai art stuff is like this weird version of like, you know, like international art scene, yeah, yeah, yeah sure, or whatever. Yeah. Like, and it, it's it's all like more capital intensive and like higher budget yeah. in a way that like removes the ability to do that kind of like cultural commentary, um, and which is probably part of why it's less surveilled, to be honest. So, so what what are your plans now? Are you staying? I'm in Kentucky. I'm actually not sure. It seems it's hard for me to imagine, but theoretically, I'm going to graduate in May. Um, oh wow! Close. I think I'm not. I think I need to get a lot of work done if that's going to actually happen. I was going to ask. I don't know if this is the time to do this, but um, yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about whether you, to what extent, your work intersects with like either urban studies, literature, or like theorizations of the urban, because that that's all my shit, and I don't know how interesting it is for other people. But um, I was thinking, there's like, it really reminded me of the work of a guy in the UK, um, Alejandro de Cos Corzo. 
who's um, a Mexican guy who did field work with people who are working on repairing water infrastructure in Mexico City. Uh, but it's very like affect driven. So like about the affect, the affective labor and the, the like infrastructural labor of repairing water infrastructure and how this was like negotiated and how they kind of talked about their labor and stuff like that. And it seems super, super relevant. Um, yeah, thanks. I hadn't seen that at all. Um, it's kind of a problem. So the, the weird um, where I where I'm where I stand at this point is that I'm coming out of my background is basically like migration studies yeah. and like my borders and migration stuff and that's what I was reading all of like prior to doing field work and um, at the time I worked pretty hard to um, like compartmentalize and just told myself and my committee and everyone else that I'm not an urban geographer. Um, because I felt like if I was going to become an urban geographer, I would have to read a whole other chunk of stuff. And now I am writing all of this and thinking that it's going to be very hard for me to convince myself or anyone else that I'm not an urban geographer and that I probably do need to read all of that stuff. Um, so I'm kind of terrified about it, um, to be honest, but I don't know how much you need to read. I think it's, I don't know, urban studies is sufficiently like a, eclectic discipline that you can just do do a few big names and uh, and pick the rest up i think that makes sense well i need to read the big names then because i haven't read them i i think it's like very uk geography centric a lot of this like mm. infrastructure yeah. and stuff which i don't really realize because it's just the the milieu that i exist in um and i don't really know how it like interfaces with u.s human geography world yeah a bunch of the stuff that I was reading, I was, I think I've been like kind of starting to read that and enjoying it, but there, there, it's mainly, I have mainly been coming from a pretty U.S. perspective. Um, yeah, no, it just, it like particularly the, I mean, the formality, informality thing and the, uh -huh. it ties into this whole people as infrastructure, um, Abdul Malik Simone, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that like whole world of like post-colonial, like loads of people who do work in in like African cities or Indian cities yeah. that are really tied in with like assemblage theory and stuff like yeah. this. And I'm sure. I've read, mm, sorry. Yeah, I've read I've read chunks of that, and then I was like, I'm, I've been thinking a bunch about like um, Ash Amin yeah. article, lively infrastructure. So yeah. yeah. Oh, cool. Well, thank you, Leif. This was yeah. Very uh, thanks for sharing the details of your research. The audience will enjoy it. I hope it's, yeah, I hope it's useful. See yeah, you. take care. Yeah. See you later. Yeah, um, thanks for joining. See you guys soon. Keep in touch, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. right. Bye.